2: This is the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell, sponsored by Raytheon.
1: There is a difference between how the president talks about foreign policy and national security strategy and what the administration actually does. Overall, I would give them reasonably good marks on the further uh, dismantling the global jihadist threat, both al-Qaeda as an organization and, and ISIS. The strategic challenge has always been, once you take them down, can you prevent their reconstitution? And so the jury is really out on that, and that's nested in the broader Middle East strategy and South and Central Asia strategy, that I think there is some cause for concern, particularly given the turbulence in the region administration's strategy now is to
0: put so much pressure on the Iranians by renewing sanctions that we're able to get a better nuclear deal. What do you see as the prospects of the success of that strategy?
1: Right now, the Iranians, you know, have a lot of uh, domestic challenges. And so this is an opportune time to put more pressure on. The challenge is whether we can rally the international community enough. I'm not confident that the, you know, just more sanctions of the type we're envisioning will really lead to the outcome we want. (laughs) Mike Vickers
0: was the longest-serving Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence in history. He was only one of a few people to be nominated for presidentially appointed, congressionally approved positions by both President Bush and President Obama. Mike has had a truly amazing career in national security, serving as a special forces officer in the military, as a CIA operations officer, and as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations. He is one of our nation's true experts on defense intelligence and national security. I had a chance to sit down with Mike to talk about the entire range of national security issues. We'll be right back with that conversation after a word from our sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. For over 50 years, Raytheon engineers have shaped tomorrow's world from space, from next-gen imaging to breakthrough missile warning systems. Raytheon is putting ideas in orbit to make the world a safer place. Mike, thanks for joining us today. It is great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure.
1: Congratulations on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. I should start by telling people, acknowledging to people that you and I are close friends, which grew out of us spending so much time together in the Situation Room and grew out of you and I really seeing eye to eye on the importance of putting intense pressure on terrorist organizations that were trying to kill Americans. Absolutely. So uh, pe- people need to know that, that uh, you and I are friends here. Let me start by asking a question that I think many of our listeners will have. What is defense intelligence and how does that differ from national level intelligence or strategic intelligence?
1: So, many of the uh, intelligence organizations that comprise the 17 member intelligence community are defense organizations, about half of them. So, four big national agencies National Security Agency, uh, Defense Intelligence Agency, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and National Reconnaissance Office, and then the intelligence organizations of the Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps. So, they tend to focus more on defense issues but also provide. Uh, national intelligence in their respective domains, Uh, NSA in the signals intelligence area and code making, code breaking, uh, NGA in uh, imagery, interpretation and mapping.
0: And so when when you were the undersecretary of defense for intelligence, all of the defense intelligence entities reported to you, you were in charge of all of that.
1: Yeah, I exercised the Secretary of Defense's authority, direction, and control over the Defense Intelligence Enterprise, uh, which comprised all those elements, but in the national intelligence realm, shared that responsibility with the DNI, uh, Jim Clapper.
0: And so some of the leaders of those organizations actually reported to both of you.
1: Yes, both to the Secretary of Defense through me and then to the DNI.
0: Mike, I know you're in the process... Of writing a book about your career and I can't wait to read it and we will have you back on the show when the book gets published to talk in detail about your time in government and all the things you did what I'd love to do today is to concentrate on the world today what the US is doing that is working what the US is doing that's not working what your advice would be for the government going forward on those things but I did want to ask you a couple of career related questions, just so people get a sense of who you are and what you've done all without really taking anything away from your book. Sure. Because I know your publisher wouldn't be happy about that. <laughs> sure. So your time as a CIA operations officer mm-hmm. was dominated by working on what is known as the Afghan program. Yeah. The CIA covert action that provided support to the freedom fighters in Afghanistan who ultimately drove the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan. And quite frankly, which played a significant role in the ultimate fall, in my view, of the Soviet Union. So you have that on your resume, which is a really cool thing. In fact, you even have a character in the movie Charlie Wilson's War who plays you, <laughs> this really smart, chess-playing <laughs> weapons, CIA weapons expert. So that's really cool, too. But I just have two questions about that time in your career. And the first is, what role did you actually play in the program? What did you actually do?
1: So I was formally the uh, program officer, which meant I was the principal officer within CIA uh, responsible for that program, uh, reporting up to officers with more senior responsibility, the chief of South Asian operations that had uh, not only Afghanistan and Pakistan in the directorate of operations, but Iran to Bangladesh his boss in the Near East and South Asia Division, to the D- the dire- uh, Deputy Director of Operations, to the Director of Central Intelligence. And how long did you do that for? I did that for two years, 84 to 86. Those were the decisive years when we decided to go for victory to drive the Soviets out. The strategy change was March of 85. And then... And what was the strategy change? Um, it was to shift from a strategy of imposing costs on the Soviet Union, but really without hopes of defeating them, just making their intervention in Afghanistan expensive to actually driving them out. Uh, And this was codified in a national security decision directive, a top secret compartmented directive at the time that since has been declassified uh, called NSDD 166 that I helped uh, author.
0: And and the, the change in strategy led to a significant change in what you were doing or how you were doing it or the level of what you were doing yes yeah,
1: so the, um, there were additional resources provided to cia about a fivefold increase of res- in resources by charlie wilson just before that and that triggered a strategic review a big interagency review that i know you're familiar with uh and then the new strategy led to additional resources so within the scope of a year the program increased by a factor of uh, 11 times and the quantity and quality of weapons, training, intelligence support, everything went dramatically up, uh, culminating in the decision to introduce um, the Stinger uh, surface to air missile system in uh, March of 1986. Which
0: was critically important because the Soviet helicopters were havoc.
1: Right. So it, it, uh, it, along with a lot of other weapons, really changed the air balance pretty significantly. But a lot of other things contributed as well. And ironically, the Soviets, you may remember, Mikhail Gorbachev came to power about the same time as our national security directive in March of 1985. And he escalated the war. He did his own surge, like our Iraq and Afghanistan surges of recent years, uh, but took his top general from Eastern Europe and put him in there, gave him one year to turn the situation around. So this was really a battle of surges in 1985, and we and the Afghan resistance won.
0: Great success for the United States and Great for CIA. Success.
1: And Well, with a tragic—yes, it's the largest and most people say the most successful uh, covert action program in, in CIA's history— but not without its tragic consequences eventually leading to 9-11.
0: Yeah, so that's the other question I wanted to ask you. And that is, did we get the aftermath of that success wrong, right? Did we not do some things that we should have done in Afghanistan post that success, right? Because a lot, of, some of those freedom fighters ended up being terrorists. Are there things you think we could have done to have prevented that unintended consequence i guess
1: yeah so it was a series of of uh, the short answer is yes i mean we should have stayed engaged there it was complicated by the fact that our main objective you don't mean militarily you mean politically politically diplomatically diplomatically with aid and also an intelligence presence and some security assistance I, i i don't mean um militarily but a couple things complicated that. One, Pakistan was on a path to developing nuclear weapons, and there was congressional legislation that, when they crossed a certain threshold toward that goal, and the president couldn't certify that they hadn't crossed that threshold, we had a lot of aid to Pakistan, and it had to be suspended. That occurred in 1990, right as the uh, right after year after the Soviets withdrew, but there was still the uh, insurgency going on until 1992. Uh, in Afghanistan. Second, you know, as you know, the Berlin Wall fell, Eastern Europe was liberated, the U.S. government, the Bush administration became very focused on consolidating its gains in Europe, uh, historical gains at the end of the Cold War, and thought Afghanistan and Pakistan was more a, a regional problem. Uh, everyone knew there would be continued civil war. Uh, how long it would take the resistance to win was a matter of some debate, but no one imagined at the time that you would have this, that it would become a sanctuary for a, glo- a new global jihadist terrorist organization, and, and with, with such tragic consequences for us. And then, of course, the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, and I uh, turned a lot toward Russia. Afghanistan went into a brutal civil war for some years before the Taliban emerged in 1996, and then Al Qaeda came. So we had several opportunities. Uh, albeit difficult ones, to at least stay more engaged than we were. Uh, I think it was a lack of strategic foresight. And then also the second phase of this, as the al-Qaeda threat was developing... Um, right. to take more aggressive action right. Right. Uh, across two administrations, just the beginning of the Bush administration, but a lot of Clinton years where we looked at options but right. really didn't do much other than some We had two embassies strikes.
0: attacked. We had a U.S. Had, warship attacked. Right. And so with we very knew, little response. You
1: know, the CIA was warning about this growing threat, but we, didn't, we essentially didn't do enough, and it's one of the big lessons of counterterrorism, as you know, not to let them build up a sanctuary for that period of time. We would, I hope we would never make that mistake again.
0: Let me ask you one more question about the past before we jump to the issues of the day, Mike. You are one of the most nonpartisan people that I know. I'm your friend, and I really don't know if you vote more Democrat or more Republican. I I, I just have no idea. That's how nonpartisan you are. But like me, you found yourself stepping out of that nonpartisan role and endorsing Hillary Clinton. Why did you do that? Um, I thought uh –
1: she, she was an effective Secretary of State in the years that uh, we served with her, with um, Bob Gates, as Secretary of Defense, and Leon Panetta at CIA. I thought it was a very, very strong team, um, the first Obama term. And I thought her foreign policy views based on that, or her national security views, were more in line she was with, tough. with my traditional views. She, she, she was, was pretty tough. tough. <laughs> Um, and so that that really shaped my uh, I you know I am not an isolationist I believe the United States has to be engaged if a Republican had looked just like Hillary Clinton or slightly different you know different economic philosophy or something then I pr- certainly would have remained neutral in that regard you know as you say my tradition is more to be non uh, nonpartisan but in this case I thought it was Did a you ever have second choice.
0: thoughts or about? doing that?
1: Yeah, it was my first and only, and uh, I I have had um, second thoughts just about, you know, as intelligence officers, we're trained to call it as, as we see it, but then stop there. Right, right.
0: Okay, the world today. Mike, overall, how do you think the Trump administration is doing dealing with the national security threats and challenges that our country faces? Sort of what grade would you give the administration? And is there a difference in how you think about that grade between what the administration is actually doing and how the president talks about it. So how do you think about, how do you think in general about how they're doing?
1: Yeah. So I do think there is a difference between um, how the president talks about foreign policy and national security strategy and what the administration actually does. There, there are some fine people in the administration who are doing very commendable work. And You know, and as you know, a lot of the business of the U.S. government goes on uh, in the intelligence community. We continue to collect and analyze intelligence and same thing and prepare for conflict in the Department of Defense, uh, engage in operations. So overall, I would give them reasonably good marks on the further uh, dismantling the global jihadist threat, both al-Qaeda as an organization and, and ISIS. Um, the challenge will really be, the strategic challenge has always been, once you take them down, can you prevent their reconstitution? And so the jury is really out on that. And that's nested in the broader Middle East strategy and South and Central Asia strategy that I think there is some cause for concern, particularly given the turbulence in the region. With Iran, the other sort of Middle Eastern threat, I think we made a mistake across two administrations by not making life more difficult for them and the Russians in Syria. I think we missed an opportunity. And I think our hands-off, indirect approach to the conflict in Yemen has resulted in a lot of civilian casualties, and it's also produced indecisive results. And therefore the Iranians with their proxy, the Houthis, have, have sort of hung on. So in terms of um, the concerns about Iran, in terms of regional meddling, I don't think we've fully addressed that problem, I think. Uh, new sanctions... Won't really address that in the same yeah. way. That so let's
0: either. let's maybe take these one at a time. So let's go back to counterterrorism for a second. How do you see the threat today from the global jihadist movement? How would you characterize the threat today? You know, ISIS has lost essentially lost its caliphate, but how do you think about the threat today?
1: Yeah. So. As long as they don't have a um, a sanctuary in time where they can plot global attacks, develop capabilities, new technologies, train operatives, that typically is a year to a few-year cycle unless they have them handy. And so that threat, I think, has been diminished. The global jihadist movement is either hanging on for dear life in various places or more dispersed, but they have footholds in a lot of different regions in North Africa and Libya. They still have cells in Europe, in the Afghanistan, Pakistan uh, region, and then East um, Asia, Syria, East- Yemen, East Asia. Uh, the threat has grown some in Southeast Asia, actually, which has been generally a more uh, dormant theater. So their ability to mount really sophisticated, catastrophic attacks is certainly down, but not the threat of more local attacks, in, in, in several regions,
0: and and would you
1: and the ideology, is yeah,
0: and would you agree that if we don't keep the pressure on them in all of these places, that the risk of them developing the capability to attack us again is a real possibility?
1: Yes, I think that that's the, what that's what we learned. At the that's end of the day, what we right? learned. That's what we learned at the end of the day. And so it's imperative to keep the pressure on. And that means leveraging our advantages in uh, armed reconnaissance, uh, uh, drone warfare, essentially, but also the global network of partners that we have built and all the intelligence and security sharing um, with these countries that allow us to more nip threats in the bud. And that, that's essential to keep the threat at manageable levels.
0: And is your sense that the administration is doing a pretty good job on
1: that? I, I, I mean, think in terms of keeping the pressure on in terms of uh, precision strikes and armed reconnaissance, yes, I think they're doing a pretty good job on that. In terms of, uh, and, and continuing to take some senior leaders off the battlefield, some very important ones, uh, potentially. In terms of um, sustaining the global network of partners, which is sort of the other side of it, I think the jury's out a bit on that.
0: Because we're We're challenging our allies rather than embracing them in some cases. Right. right. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Mike Vickers. Do you hear that? That's the sound of a night sky, protected by an overlapping network of Raytheon missile defense solutions. Across all tiers, enabling all missions, our groundbreaking interoperable technologies are ready to detect... Track and intercept incoming threats. To defend service members and safeguard nations. To connect vision with unparalleled precision. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Okay, so back to Iran for a second. Were you a supporter of the Iran deal, the Iran nuclear deal? or Did you have concerns about it? How did you think about it?
1: So both. I mean, I was a supporter at the end of the day because I think it was the... In purely nuclear terms, I think it was the best option we had to retard their program for a reasonable period of time. So in that sense, I think as a narrow arms control agreement, for all its faults in that area that it's not indefinite, it did buy us some time, and in that sense it was successful. In terms of not being part of a broader comprehensive Iran strategy, where the pressure was taken off across the board, what pressure there had been before, which probably wasn't adequate to begin with, then I don't think it could meet its intent. And so I think that criticism is fair in terms of not doing anything to restrain their proxy activities, their, their unconventional warfare.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I have two questions for you. One is I don't think any administration has pushed hard enough back on what the Iranians do in the region. I would agree with that. And my question is, why do you think that's the case? Why have we not done that?
1: Um, I think it varies by by case. So, you know, part of it, you know, if I go back to the Reagan administration where they started building Hezbollah uh, and kidnapping and right. torturing our diplomats and and colleagues in the in the cia bombing and, uh, the em- and bombing, bombing the embassy in beirut and, and marine marine barracks, marine barracks absolutely and, right you know i think that was viewed as a very local conflict that if we disengaged the problem would go away and to some extent it did but it was a victory for iran and then i think if you look at the bush administration you know, there were just so many other things going right. on, almost like I mean, the we first had, Bush administration. We had we
0: had Iran Iran providing um, sophisticated IEDs to Shia militia groups in Iraq that were killing American soldiers. Right, right, and not much of a pushback.
1: Right. So, for instance, we did things against them in Iraq, but right, we're hesitant about doing much uh, more than that, or certainly some cross border things. Uh, without going into details, and that puts you in the same kind of sandwich we found ourselves in in Southeast Asia, where you know you you draw the line of the conflict right here, and then you, you let the enemies on both sides treat you as a punching bag.
0: Well, I think this is a good PhD dissertation for anybody out there who uh, who who wants to write about this because it's a it's a really fascinating thing that we haven't sufficiently pushed back for a long long time. But the strategy now, right? The administration's strategy now is to put so much pressure on the Iranians by renewing sanctions that were able to get a better nuclear deal and were able to change their behavior with regard to regional influence. What do you see as the prospects of the success of that strategy?
1: You know, I think the goals are um, reasonable ones. I don't think the likelihood of success is all that high. Now, the, the, Right now, the the Iranians, uh, you know, have a lot of uh, domestic challenges. And so this is an opportune time to put more pressure on them. The challenge is whether we can rally the international community enough, and particularly um, now that you have more great power interest in the Middle East, which we hadn't really had in the past couple of decades, with Russia uh, in, and Russia's not going to do a lot to help the Iranian economy, but others, others might in some regard. And so... Um, I'm not confident that the you know just more sanctions of the type we're envisioning will really lead to the outcome we want. They've weathered a lot you know in the past, and I don't see any reason to think that they couldn't yeah. I, I think it would take a combination of hitting them back harder in other places uh, as well as uh, pressure, and then also importantly, rallying the international community, which is much tougher today than it was um, uh, say ten years ago yeah.
0: You know, my thought was always, let's get the nuclear deal and then let's turn the page to the regional interference and put, put, you know, internationally in a multilateral approach, put as much pressure on them on the regional issues that we put on the nuclear
1: issue. And I think right. those should have been entwined. I yes. mean, again, it was a different time, a yes, yes, different yes. adversary, much more yeah. uh, dangerous. But with the Soviet Union, that's precisely what we did in the 1980s, just because we did arms control agreements and some breathtaking ones that were very good things. We didn't take the pressure off in Afghanistan. We didn't take the pressure off globally or rallying our European allies, et cetera.
0: Exactly. All right. North Korea, where do you think we are?
1: Um, so my, I think, you know, tensions are down, which is good. North Korea is primarily um, a nuclear threat now and a growing one, one that's made pretty dramatic progress in the past few years, uh, both in weapons and delivery systems. I think the real danger for us in this is that we... Um, have started a process that diplomatically that may get out of control for us. We have very, very ambitious objectives that are keyed, you know, denuclearization, very rapid denuclearization, that are keyed to this um, warming of relations. But it's not clear at the end that North Korea may be able to use this diplomatically to separate South Korea from us because South Korea looks like they're all in now on this warming of relations. And so if we decide, wait, you're not fulfilling your end of the bargain, the train may have left the station at that point, and you may end up with a worse position in Northeast Asia than we have
0: now. So, 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 so would you agree that I'm, testing the proposition as to whether this guy is willing to negotiate away his nuclear weapons is worth it makes sense? Yes. Um, and the trick then is, if he's not, how do we... How do we move forward then? That's the complicating factor here.
1: Right. And and still retain your alliances and all your capabilities.
0: And what's your bet? Do you think he's actually willing to negotiate away for a price, or do you think his intent is to hang on to at least some part of his program to sort of have his cake and eat it too? What do I, you think?
1: I think it's more cake and eat it too and then achieve – other diplomatic objectives. To me, the price would have to be so high that doesn't have North Korea absorb- economically absorbed by the South. You know, it just seems Im- implausible in-, in regional terms or in U.S. terms that we could sufficiently meet those demands. I mean, this is ultimately his insurance card.
0: So we may find ourselves back in a situation at some point, maybe not next week or six months from now or a year from now, but we may find ourselves back at some point and having to make a choice between living with this program or dealing with it militarily.
1: Yeah. Now, again, on the strategic side, this is an area where deterrence does seem to work. I mean, you really have to have a madman theory to say that, um, you know because the the end result is obliteration for them the weapons are useful to deter us from changing the regime uh, they're not useful for a bolt out of a blue that then ends in the destruction of his regime so i think there's a lot of ways this could turn out and it's it's possible there could be you know a partial deal of some partial denuclearization lessening of tensions that still let them remain a nuclear power but with uh, trying to achieve the goal of more economic development that is that still puts us better off than we were before. But that will be a pretty sophisticated diplomatic play to keep South Korea on side, the Russians and Chinese who haven't always been helpful. Sometimes the Chinese are helpful, sometimes not. Russians less so to pull off this diplomatic hat trick. Okay, Russia.
0: (laughs) How should we think about Russia and the threat that they pose to the United States and What should we do about it?
1: So I think Russia is actually our most immediate threat right now and has been. I think what they did in intervening in our um, 2016 presidential election was um, brazen. They really uh, didn't care if they got caught in a lot of ways. I, I think it was quite successful. And they're still at it. And ironically, they're using... American creations, the creation of a, an open global economy where money and things can flow freely, and then, the, and then innovation, the invention of social media to attack American weaknesses, our polarization, our economic dislocation and others to, to heighten tensions that were already there. So, you know, in a way, it's not surprising. And then also it had the benefit of strategic surprise this really, I think, wasn't on people's radar screens. And where they were having their biggest effect in social media, we weren't monitoring until too late. Uh, I don't think we'll make that mistake again, but uh, at the time, I think all those things conspired to why I think uh, it worked so well. You know, Russia, Russia's strategy is really um, to restore its great power status, it sees its primary aim as weakening its opponents in Europe and the United States. It knows it really can't compete head to head. So they're engaged in the strategic attrition campaign, mostly an in intelligence war with us, with a lot of... With their term for covert action is active measures to essentially weaken us, to attack our will and our cohesion rather than our capabilities. That's probably... So what biggest. do we do about that? Um, so it's a combination, I think, of... Um, offense and defense Uh, we're in this with the europeans it's fundamentally a political and informational problem to rally people that you're being attacked and you shouldn't like it you know intelligence can play its role in and and law enforcement in terms of discovery and presenting evidence it's naming and shaming in certain cases but it's also some elements of hitting back with various tools as well you just can't play um, defense Um, the other side of russian strategy is to, you know, fight wars largely on their periphery where they have time and space advantages or uh, ethnic advantages, but then also in hybrid war, both unconventional and conventional, but then escalate to the strategic level with a threatened cyber attack or uh, something else short of nuclear weapons that could bring the conflict to an end. We don't necessarily have a good answer to that as a defense problem. That's, it's something we need to work on both how to defend very far forward or to, to achieve deterrence, but also then when they threaten to escalate because they know if the war goes on, they will lose. Uh, how do we manage that escalation to where they can't de- declare victory and go home?
0: OK, China, um, if Russia is the most immediate, maybe China is the most long term. No, by, the by the far the greatest,
1: most challenging long term. So scenario. how do you think about that? Well, ultimately, it's an economic and technological competition. Unlike the Cold War, you know, it's about who is going to be the global leader, first with the biggest economy, and out of that will come political influence. Um, but then, secondarily, who is the most innovative economy in creating the industries of the future? And then, a related risk of that is does some of those technologies that are also creating industries of the future, biotechnology, artificial intelligence, potentially quantum technologies, uh, and others, do they have military effects that really can change the military balance? And so that's, you know, whether we're just in a competition, uh, essentially a peacetime competition, for who's going to have more sway in the global environment, conflict still deterred by nuclear weapons or limited by nuclear weapons, or is there some breakthrough technologies that could really alter the yeah. balance? And that's sort of the 20 to 30-year problem that we have as a nation. Mm-hmm. Of how do we solve that challenge?
0: And we're we're both taking very different approaches to that competition, right? We're taking a market-based free enterprise approach, and they're taking a state-directed resource approach to this competition.
1: Right, and combinations of intellectual property theft and, and state-directed and uh, you know, Xi Jinping has said they wanted to dominate uh, future biotechnology and artificial intelligence. Now, whether they can do that or not. Uh, so, how do you think this plays out ultimately?
0: Well, I know that's a really
1: tough question. Well, it really turns you know, China's had an economic miracle over several decades that's almost unprecedented in economic history. And so, whether they have bumps in the road or political bumps in the road that are associated with economic downturns, I think, you know, remains to be seen. And it also I think is contingent on what's the nature of power and its relation to political stability and political cohesion in the future. So for example, you know, China has four times the population we do. Is that an asset or a liability? I think the jury is out depending on how, capital intensive or technology intensive future industries or military power is. And if you can't, just as we see at home, if you leave people behind, you get political consequences to that. So I don't have an answer to that. I just, uh, uh, I I believe it's our most important strategic challenge over the long haul.
0: Mike, you've been incredibly gracious with your time. Just one more question. Like I was, you were deeply involved in the raid that brought Osama bin Laden to justice. And I know you'll talk in detail about that in your book. But what I wanted to ask you is what single moment in either the planning for the raid or during the raid or after the raid most stands out for you?
1: Well, that's tough, but I can, I, I can give you... A few. So when I was one of the first people inside the U.S. government to be read in on the intelligence uh, in early, uh, late summer, early fall of 2010, by you, as a matter of fact, with the vice chairman, I was really struck at the intelligence case at that point. Still circumstantial, but a lot of evidence pointing that there's really something there. And so that was a neat moment in my office, actually. I remember that too. Yeah, you know, my adrenaline really went up. And then the same thing. When we were directed to start planning uh, options, operational options at Christmas time, it's the first time really I just didn't enjoy a Christmas with my family and wanted to get back right to work and work on those options. And then I remember our first meeting on options with President Obama, where he said, we're going to do this, we're going to do it sooner rather than later, and we're going to do it unilaterally in the White House Situation Room. And uh, we were still... I guess six, eight weeks away from actually doing the operation. But I thought, Holy cow, we better, this is This gonna is, is going to happen. This is going to happen. Um, and then I guess the final moment was, uh, you know, you know, all the things can go wrong from our experience with the Iranian hostage rescue attempt and others. But, uh, once we knew what had happened to that first helicopter that had landed and the SEALs got out, I thought the only question remaining at that point was whether he's there or not and we're going to know that in 10 minutes and, uh, and so I felt a real sigh of relief when I, when I saw that the helicopter hadn't been shot down Just had a hard had, landing It had it a hard, hard landing, landing, our troops had gotten out and then, and, and now we'll know
0: yeah. Alright Mike, thanks for being with us. Sure, great pleasure All right. That was Mike Vickers. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.
2: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.